You're listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast of readings and archives from City Lights books and publishers. To learn more, visit www.citylights.com. Hello, everyone. Peter Maravellis here. I'm hoping this finds you all safe and well. On behalf of City Lights booksellers and publishers and the City Lights Foundation, I'd like to welcome you to City Lights Live, our virtual reading series that follows in the footsteps of our in-store calendar during the time of the pandemic. As always, we are beaming to you from the unceded ancestral grounds of the Ramatishaloni peoples, from where we continue to celebrate the works of authors we know and love with readings, discussions, and forums moving into the winter of 2022 and hopefully towards a COVID-free era. Tonight, we are delighted to be able to welcome Nadifa Muhammad in conversation with Tommy Orange. We are celebrating the publication of her new novel, the Booker Prize finalist, The Fortune Men, published by Alfred Knopf, based on the life of Mahmoud Matan, a man who lived in post-war Wales and was accused of a crime he did not commit, was executed, but then exonerated decades later. Ms. Muhammad builds a complex picture of both the man and his circumstances, giving us a view of Britain through the eyes of a Black, of a black African, the reversal of Eurocentric perspective and one filled with great insights and humanity. Nadifa Muhammad was born in Hargisa, Somaliland. I hope I pronounced that correctly. I don't think I did. Uh, <laughs> later, she moved to London. She is the author of Black Mamba Boy and The Orchard of Lost Souls. She has received both the Betty Trask Award and the Somerset Mom Award. And in 2013, she was named as one of Granta's best of young British novelists. Her work appears regularly in The Guardian and the BBC. A fellow of the Royal Society of Literature. She continues to make her home in London. And joining her tonight is Tommy Orange, no stranger to City Lights. Tommy Orange is a novelist and writer from Oakland. His first book, There There, was one of the finalists for the 2019 Pulitzer Prize and received the 2019 American Book Award. Mr. Orange is a citizen of the Cheyenne and Arapaho tribes of Oklahoma. He attended Institute of American Indian Arts and earned a master's in fine arts there. He was born and raised in Oakland, California, but makes his home in Angels Camp, California. So please join us now in giving a warm welcome, Nadifa Muhammad and Tommy Orange. Welcome to City Lights Live. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, Nadifa, for uh, being here with me and for writing this uh, beautiful book. Where are you uh, coming at us from? I, I think New York. Yes. Yep, Manhattan. Um, my eighth day here. Eighth and it's a day. break from the UK, which I really needed a break from. And this is eighth day, like, like you haven't been to New York, like in general in your life? I have, or... but I arrived this time round um, eight days ago, I think. It was the 21st. So this is my, I haven't been back for five, six years. I didn't come here during the Trump years. I don't think I would have been allowed in. Um, I was impacted by the Muslim ban. So it's been nice to come back without all of that hanging over my head. Mm-hmm. And are you, are you, you're here for NYU, you said earlier. Yes, um, yeah. Are you able to do it, anything not that I'm encouraging it in any way, but are, are you able to do any part of this book? Because I, I think the U.S. book was released just at the end of last year, right? Mm-hmm. Are you able to do anything in person? Is that is that part of what's happening or no? Uh, at the moment, no. Everything has been online. But I'm hoping also, I think we had our, God knows, how, I don't know what wave it is now, fourth fifth wave of covid just before you guys and i think it hit you guys later so even now in new york it's very quiet surprisingly quiet so um not many in-person events are happening to my knowledge and as the spring arrives hopefully there'll be more and um i think uh we are gonna have you read a little bit um from your beautiful book. I, I don't know if, if uh, there's any type of intro you want to give for us before you start. I can. Into what you're reading. Yep. So 
let me think. I always, I tend to read from Mahmoud's sections rather than the other characters, but tonight I'm feeling as if I maybe want to read from Berlin's little passage where he thinks back. Love Berlin. <laughs> I love Berlin. Sort of an earned love too, because at the beginning, I, he's a little bit more like, you're not so sure. A blowhard. As we enter. Yeah, but you end up, I mean, I ended up loving Berlin so much. Yeah. And the way that they, their, their origin story of their friendship. Yes, yeah. So this is a, a small section, um, chapter two. After turning the sign on the door, Berlin perches on a stool and lights a cigarette, his silhouette appearing and disappearing with the flashing jukebox lights. The floor is mopped, the till emptied, and the coffee machine cleaned. Just enough time to savor a last cigarette before Lou begins hollering for him to come to bed. He tries to empty his mind, but thoughts gallop up and down, bills that need to be paid, a court summons for street gambling, a memory of his long dead mother's incense, suddenly as strong as a cigarette smoke. Another of his American daughter's downturned infant mouth. He rises and opens the drawer behind the bar, pulls out an old postcard of the Empire State Building in a blizzard, postmarked 10 Decembers ago. Taiyage had written a short message in block capitals on the reverse wishing him a good new year and telling him that he thinks he saw Lucille in a playground in Boreham Hill and that she looked well and was climbing the frame as well as any steel worker. The postcard has been in the drawer since it arrived, Berlin thinking that any day now he will reply, but somehow never managing to do it. Brooklyn is lost to the past to the man he had been before the Johnson-Reed Act had cleansed America of men like him. He struggles to keep old worlds alive, friends, lovers, even children seem to deliquesce when he turns his back, appearing in fragments in his dreams and quiet moments to stake their claim on him. I'll read again later. I love this moment so much and uh, I think it relates to a lot of questions I have um, as well. And let's just start with Berlin here. Um, we, we get this um, after Berlin um, reads uh, a note from uh, Mahmoud's uh, mother and this sort of gets him thinking about his past and, and different correspondences. And there's this amazing passage in there where he's talking about being a part of a sort of human zoo, which in, in my research in the past couple of years, I've come across as being, you know, in the UK and here and other parts of Europe, um, where, where people from who aren't white, basically, uh, historically, who are curiosities human curiosities become a part of these sort of human zoo things and you have this moment where berlin meets up with this uh american indian guy who who's a mohawk guy who was who he met you know and then ended up seeing him again after he basically got robbed after kind of a wild night out that he yeah. did, hadn't expected um In so Harlem. it 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 makes me wonder, um, and this is sort of a question that I want, I'll probably keep bringing up, but the level of research, like I, I found myself while reading, cause you, you, I read it knowing it's a real thing that happened, but also that it was this imagined thing because you have this like novel frame to it, you know, it's a novel. So, you know, the imagination is at work and that, that there's a real thing and, and and with Berlin and, and this past memory that I think must come from, from the imagination, but, but also is influenced by research. Uh, I just, can you talk about your process in researching and where things like this 
sort of spring from in your process because it was so fascinating because these things are true but you obviously imagine so much because in your language is where you know the way that you write the beautiful way that you write I can see what you're imagining into the language of it that it's both you and and the research happening at once oh great question so it's a real mixture and so to start on the research, I've been fascinated with human zoos for a really long time, not for any particular goal, um, but then while researching the, the world of Tiger Bay. So Berlin is based on a real character called Berlin who had a cafe in, in Tiger Bay, but he wasn't as close to my knowledge um, as I have presented in the novel to Mahmoud Matan. Um, so I've, I've juxtaposed different characters and different real figures into these different relationships but I spoke to Berlin's son who still lives in Tiger Bay and he filled me in on his father's background including his time in a human zoo in Germany and that I was so excited by that because this was an old fascination of mine coming together with the current project so there was no way on earth I couldn't write about it and then by chance I was in Peru um, for a book festival and I met Tayage who is from a Mohawk family in, in Canada. And we got talking about um, the Native American, Indigenous American experience of those human zoos across the world. Um, and in, including individuals who hadn't survived that, who had been lost in Europe through illness, through all sorts of uh, terrible outcomes. So th I knew that I was tapping into something global something that crossed the, the intimate history of this particular world that I was writing about. And also what the reality of, what the experience of that is. So when Berlin's son was telling me about his father's childhood in this human zoo, it wasn't with any great sense of tragedy or shame or anger. It was just another part of this kind of chaotic, funny life that his father had lived. And he'd, he'd gone from that life and, um, become a sailor by stealing an Arab man's papers. So all of this shape-shifting, this, this throwing yourself into completely mad <laughs> situations was part of the world that Mahmoud knew, that Berlin knew, that my father knew. And I wanted to get across that, you know, there is a loss that they sometimes have to think about that chases them, that they try and keep at arm's length. My father was very, very close to his mother, but he wouldn't see her for years. And she couldn't read or write. And when he was first in the UK, he couldn't read or write. But I found this really um, on the back of a stamp that he had saved. There was a fragment of a letter that she had written for her by a scribe in Eritrea in 1949. So they was, she was still chasing him, despite the fact that she was illiterate and he was illiterate. She could still grab his ear. And I found that really interesting. And I'm sure all of these Somali mums were trying to grab the ears of their errant sons uh was this this piece that you knew about or 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 had read this um very visceral evocative like sort of my heart my liver this language was that directly pulled from that kind of good very receptive. yeah it was actually it was not from that tiny fragment of a letter but from the tapes that my grandmother used to send to my father in the 80s um, after we had left and she was there still in Hargeisa. So yes, she'd start every cassette with this kind of poem, invocation. And mm -hmm. he is her knees, he is her firstborn, he's like the apple of her eye. He's the blood that runs through her veins. It's so intense. And then, you know, she'll get to us, she'll get to the grandchildren. And there's such artistry in her language for someone who'd never been to school. You know, it's not about schooling. It's about something, I guess it's what all writing is about. It's about a connection between your feeling and your ability to express that in words. Um, and she's excellent at it. And so I, I think, you know, the letter that Mahmoud's mother writes to him is the sort of thing I would imagine my grandmother writing to my father. I think there's a, a line right around that time, uh, uh, poetry is war, 
because Mahmoud is, is talking to Berlin about this and sort of like, what do you want? A truce. Um, and, I, you know, I, I can't help but wonder lines like that um, because my big wonder to you, because I, I listened to some things that, some interviews, um, there's so many moments where you feel so natural as a writer, as a novelist, as somebody who is breathing life into this story that I, I can't imagine any other way, but you weren't, uh, you know, you, you didn't dream of being a novelist as a young child. It, it came to you later, you're like a historian, went to Oxford. So at what point did you feel like this, this sort of poetic form that, that is contextualized in the novel form started to feel like, oh, this is, this is it. This is what I, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. Not like fate um, or fortune, but like, just like, oh, these, these lines that of language that are occurring to me that, that are based, that are steeped in truth, like whether it be personal history with your family, your grandmother, your father, or the, or this story. Um, at what point did you feel like, oh, I'm going to write novels that because that seems like a, a departure point that happened for you a little bit later in life it creeped up on me and i think it creeped up on it was a kind of mechanism that needed to happen and i in hindsight my brain works in the way that a novelist needs their brain to work you know that mixture of obsession and also being quite scattered and having all of these different elements that you pull together but the focus and obsession that you need to, to do that work is the way that my brain operates without me putting it towards fiction or writing or any creative um, activity. But I think it was the emotional need to get to know who I was, where I was, what was happening around me, my history in both a personal sense and in a more general sense. I think that's what, when I went to university and was studying history and politics and not seeing anything really related to me in that course or in those courses I started to feel fatigued I started to feel really tired and lost and so the first ever interview I did with my father was while I was still at university um, and I can't remember why you know I think I was just playing around with a new gadget I had a mini mini disc recorder thing and a new microphone so I started talking to my dad about his life but that was something that didn't stop and I found out about Mahmoud Matan's case just after university finished when I was in my first internship for a film company and I saw his face in the newspaper and read about what had happened to him and then got talking to my father who had known him they were both Somali sailors who'd arrived in 1947 in the UK but even I started writing my father's story in this way that didn't really make sense it was something I just had to do. And I told myself it was because I was recording his life history for my first niece who had been born around then. But it was like scratching an itch and you just keep going at it until you get somewhere. Um, but maybe it's only with this third novel that I really started to understand that it's something I can do repeatedly and not just in these two bursts that could have been the whole entirety of my output I think that something clicked with this novel um, that made me feel as if whatever mechanism if we want to call it a mechanism is there is now fully in motion you do something uh throughout the novel that's that's doing a few things um and it's you know it's somewhat standard in novels it, it, it's a, a sort of list making is, is something that that novelists do to build the world but you do it so beautifully and so specifically um and i wonder if you can talk about the way research um which clearly you've done a lot of um how what is the marriage of like list making and research because you you found this harmony of doing that in this incredible envious and enviable way that I that I while I was reading I'm like wow like this is another beautiful list that like so miraculously transitions into the point that you're making about the character or the scene that like you know it was just incredible uh, but I wonder if you could talk about that sort of marriage 
yeah, I think I'm not, I'm not a list maker in my own life, but my dad loved listing things. So he'd list places he'd been or countries, you know, facts about particular countries. And I think there's a specific male thing and it's maybe a generational thing. Maybe it's also a geographical thing of listing that I associate with my father and his generation, but almost to prove something, they list it. Um, and some of the lists that appear in the novel are lists that caught my imagination, particularly, there's one I can read from actually, because I love the rhythm of it so much. And it was while I was watching a documentary um, series called Time Shift, and they use archival material. It's a BBC documentary series. And this one was focused on the docks and ports of Britain. And I just heard this list and I thought, oh yes, look at all of that, <laughs> look at all of those jobs that Mahmoud would have known about. And that would be his world. And it's, you know, it's talk, people think about dockers or dock workers, but that's that's not right. There's so many it's precise roles and within that, hierarchy within that ecosystem it was racialized you know some jobs would only be for English workers some of them would only be for uh, Somalis or other migrant workers so I found that very revealing and I just loved the music the musicality of it where is it um where is this ask me a question while I look for it <laughs> Okay, this is an easy one. You probably answered it already. Um, let's start uh, at the at the front, which is the cover. Can you talk a little bit about the the name of the novel, but also the photograph um, mm -hmm. that I I was gonna try to look it up, um, which maybe I wouldn't have been able to. But it's so fascinating the faces of these men, which seem to be at least a few of them are are definitely the same man um, but I I wonder if you could tell us about the fortune man as, a, as a, a title to the novel and also what this image on the front that we get uh, what is that so the fortune man is a title that came pretty late to me this novel's had so many different titles and my editor wasn't happy with any of the previous ones so can we I, hear a couple can we hear a couple oh, so the one that stayed for a long time was the stoker because he was a stoker and I like the, <laughs> the finality of it. And there's also a lovely sh uh, short story by Franz Kafka called The Stoker. Another one was, so there was two versions of this. There was the ship of the world to come and then there was the world to come. So that was probably the book that, that's the title of the book when it was bought by my publisher. And she was, there was another novel called The World to Come by the same publisher, so that wasn't a good move. Um, and so I wrote lists. It's one of the few times I wrote lists for myself and I wrote lists of potential um, titles and, you know, there were so many, but the fortune men, the minute, I think I started off by thinking the fortune man and then I thought, no, the fortune men. And it's a term that's, that comes up in my first novel. Um, it was a term that my father told me about um, used to refer to men like him who had gone to join the British Merchant Navy. And it was both a, a point of, you know, oh, now you will make so much money, you will have a fortune, you will earn a fortune. But also the sense that they were men who had put their hands, put their lives in the hands of fortune, in fate. Many of them would never return. They would die at sea. They would disappear into different worlds, marry foreign women and raise their kids there and be buried in these strange places. So I liked that. And I thought that was true, actually, that it was, Mahmoud was a man of fortune in many ways. He was a gambler. He was someone who risked everything again and again, but he was part of a group of men like that. Um, and I thought it was only fair to, to show that in the title. And the picture is actually of West Indian migrants to Britain. They came in a big rush um, from 1948 onwards. So my dad and Mahmoud beat them by a year but they became the face of black migration into Britain from the late 40s, 50s onwards. So this is of their arrival. They would normally get a ship and then they would get a train into London. And what I love about this is that you can feel the energy. You can feel the, the movement in their bodies, in their faces. 
Um, it's very different from the cover in the UK, which is of a Somali guy in, in Tiger Bay, and he's still and looking at the camera. He's very aware of that, um, of that camera. And it's a photojournalist who's taking pictures of Tiger Bay. And I get the feeling that this tall Somali man has been following him because he appears in quite a few of the photojournalists' images. Well, this is the opposite. This is a photojournalist who's lost in the crowd and they're in, lost in the crowd. And I liked, you know, these blob, these blobs, <laughs> they were an idea that came from the designer. And I, I liked the kind of 1950s look that they have. And um, the, it's in a way you, you're, the blobs highlight this individual in the big, in the middle, but my attention goes to a different man each time I look. Um, and that, you know, it's almost like a spotlight that's falling on a different face each time. And that's pretty much, I think, what happened to Mahmoud is that he fell under the searchlight, a spotlight that he didn't belong under, but it was roaming around and then it fixed on him. But I have found the list that I was looking for. I was gonna give you, a, I was gonna give you one to read that I want you to read if, if not. Okay. That has can... to do with the stoker. Okay, where's that? This is on page 20. And I'll just give you, it's, it's a short one. You could go right into what you were going to read after. Okay. But it's just such a beautiful um, microcosm uh, of, uh, of kind of the macrocosm of what you do in the book uh, that is about this, uh, this sort of yellow to orange, white, blue, and then pure energy sort of movement that happens in the whole book that I feel was so, and it's, you know, it's a very Stoker moment. It um, is a very Stoker moment. I know exactly what you mean. Okay, so I'll start from pulling his Homburg hat low over his eyebrows. He takes a yellow ticket stamped with a number nine and waits his turn for the counter beside one of the heavy coiled radiators. The heat from the cast iron blasts through his thin trousers and teases his skin somewhere between pleasure and pain and he rocks his body back and forth, letting the heat rise and dissipate. On the last tramper he had taken, the owners had installed new boilers and all the brass fittings had shone gold in the white light of the furnaces. He had stepped back to admire the conflagration before shoveling more coal in and turning the white light into an almost sentient colorless gas that roved backwards and up the chimney like a genie escaping a lamp. He had birthed that fire and nurtured it from yellow to orange to white to blue. And then that color that had no name, just pure energy. He'd wondered what it would be like to step forward the few inches that separated him from it. Whether like an adabka, his skin would just fall off from his flesh like a sheet. He had been formed by those fires, turned from a puny pantry boy into a knotted muscled stoker who could stand at hell's gate for hours at a stretch, his face roasted and grimy with coal dust. Beautiful. There's a moment that I feel like uh, it just occurred to me and sort of pairs with that. Um, after the trial, he, he talks about the sort of hell of having to be around people and wishing he could sort of rip open his skin and step out of it. That feels like it belongs with that. Ah, I hadn't made that connection. You're right. You're right. And that's, I think even, I think it may be in Black Mamba Boy as well. There's a moment where Jama, the main character is a boy, is a very young boy, gets so angry that he wants to step out of his skin. You know, this feeling that he's, he's trapped, he's cornered even by his own flesh. And I'm not quite sure where that idea comes from for me. But was there an Islamic? There is that, that image of hell and your skin falling off just so it can be regrown and fall off again. That does, that is part of Islamic teaching. But Mahmoud is loving it. He's loving the idea. There's almost a masochistic thing going on. And I think it's connected to this idea of masculinity. There's somewhere else in the novel as well where his ma'alim, his, his teacher, when he's young in, in Quranic school, says that, men but I think it's even true it's even told to women have to be like charcoal that you have to keep being burnt again and again until you form this this external 
ignitable part of you. Um, and otherwise, when you're young, you're too soft, you can't survive, you can't do anything. And it's only by this process of being burnt and burnt again that you can really fully live and be an adult in the world. And there's, there's also the idea of the coal, the fire in the ship where Mahmoud's first ship is um, slowly burning in one of the bunkers. There's this coal fire and the Yemeni uh, trimmer uh, says to him, there's no way to put out the fire, but to burn it. There's, there's many kind of instances I think that connect and it's not conscious, you know, I wasn't writing thinking, oh, this scene will meet or, you know, relate to the previous scene, but it's the world that they lived in and it's the world that I'm just about on the fringes of through the influence of my father and the men around him. Mm -hmm. But let me write, Speaking let of... me read this list. Oh, yeah, yes, do, do, do. <laughs> Um, the tall grand windows of Corey's rest are steamed up with figures laughing and dancing behind leaded glass. He peeks his head through the door to check if some of his regulars are there, but the West Indian faces around the snooker table are unfamiliar. He had once belonged to this army of workers pulled in from all over the world, dredged in to replace the thousands of mariners lost in the war. Dockers, tallymen, kickers, stevedores, winchmen, hatchmen, samplers, grain porters, timber porters, tacklemen, yardmasters, teamers, dock watchmen, needlemen, ferrymen, shunters, pilots, tugboatmen, foyboatmen, freshwatermen, blacksmiths, jetty clerks, warehousemen, measurers, weighers, dredgermen, lumpers, launchmen, lightermen, crane drivers, coal trimmers, and his own battalion, the stokers. Beautiful. And I think this is another, you know, like, um, obviously your novelist, this is your third novel. I, I have been struggling to finish a second one. The evil, um, just get through it. Um, there's something in your listing that is so rhythmic and musical um, that, you know, the, the difference between obsessing over history or wanting to write something historical and getting involved with the language of a novel, what you do with all your the lists throughout it has to do with, with this kind of spellbinding thing and it has to do with the musicality. Um, that, and that was a perfect example of that, um, that, you. You, that, that you do throughout. Thank you. Um, so, you were talking about the unconscious a second ago, and I, it always sort of um, hits some it hits my radar when I'm talking to novelists because because getting involved in a novel and the unconscious that's just something that you're deciding to get involved with. But you also have been writing in uh, sort of this family mode, you know, your grandmother, your father. Um, with previous books and now this is like you know the community that you like you said on the fringes of that you know and that you're from to some yeah. extent mm -hmm. and um, you know this you know colonizer situation with immigration and I think Trevor Noah uh, who first brought it to my attention this idea that like people would colonize places and then you end up with people from the places you colonize and you're sort of like surprised that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of that in Britain. Um, um, I'm wondering regarding your unconscious and, and the writing um, that comes out when you get involved with these deep projects, such as novels, um, how this one differed because it was not, even though you, you've mentioned that your father knew this man, um, how it differed between writing from sort of this family mm. um, perspective in this this family depth and like this like historical case that literally part of the novel you had an edited down version of like the way it went down in court. What, what was the difference in terms of including things that came through that felt personal and in this sense, and you, at the beginning of the book, you, you dedicated to, to Mahmoud and, and, the, and the victim. Um, it gave me freedom what? at the beginning, I think. Um, 
I realize now in hindsight how uh, constrained I was in my first novel about writing about my father. And it was a welcome constrainment because he was a collaborator and it was his story and he could set the parameters. Um, and in this case, because it was so historic, it happened almost 70 years, 70, 70 years this year, actually. Um, and it was a, a public case, a historic case. So I didn't feel as if it was um, too intimate somehow. Um, the fact that I could go to the archives near me and read through the police interviews, the court transcripts, all of the paperwork that went back and forth between Cardiff and London um, made it feel as if I could immerse myself in a way that I hadn't with my father's story or my second novel, because if stories are set in those colonized areas, places, then often there's a real lack of archives. You know, the British often burn everything as they were leaving because they didn't want to leave anything incriminating. And the few things that remained are probably in Britain. They were brought back, brought back to Britain and are under lots of difficult conditions so you can't actually access them. But this was a rare case where the British had already opened up a file before time. You know, there's normally a 70 year wait um, but another researcher, Chris Phillips, had forced open through lots of um, freedom of information requests this whole file. And it was a real luxury to be able to read it in such detail, to read it in this contemporary, you know, as if I didn't know what the end was. You know, I was reading from the beginning where they first interview him um, in his boarding house the night of the murder. And he tells them to their faces that they're liars. Um, and, you know, he asks them, do they have a warrant? No, they don't, but they're still searching his room. They say that a coloured man is um, believed responsible to, for the murder. And he's just like, oh, yeah, sure thing. You know, he's really sarcastic about it. And then you see his first real interview with the police um, in the police station. And it's so polite and so strange. Um, and they offer him sandwiches and tea knowing at the same time that they don't have a legal right to keep him for so long, but he doesn't know that. So you see how softly it happens and how convincing the police are because they're the ones who have left this archive and it damns him. So I'm reading it part, part historian, part novelist and thinking, okay, so it does, his story doesn't make sense. The story that he gives doesn't make any sense. And then you start to become, the police sounds so convincing, you start to be swayed over to their way of, thinking but at the same time you know that his conviction was quashed 48 years later so that confusion because everything I'd read in the media up until that point had painted it as a very clear case and Mahmoud had been this naive simpleton who had been um, cruelly uh, foisted you know into jail and then executed for a murder he didn't commit but the man you see and the situation you see is more complex than that and I started to feel annoyance with him because he was lying. He was, you know, avoiding simple facts that would have cleared his name or at least made his, his case um, better. So I'm part shaking him and part fighting for him and, you know, wishing I, I, could, I could be there um, for this young man who's completely out of his depth. And he only realizes he's out of his depth days before his execution and he writes this letter, well, he has, he's illiterate, so he gets the policeman who's been instrumental in framing him to come to the execution cell, and he dictates this letter to him that's so prescient and powerful. And he says, you know, in this semi-broken English that I know my life is bought cheap and that if I had another skin that was not black, I would not be here now. But I don't, you know, I don't want the real killer to be hanged. You know, it's not fair that two lives should be taken for one. But someone knows something about this case and it may take a long time, but someone someday will talk, um, which did happen 48 years later, the case was quashed. But that's a very heartbreaking moment when Mahmoud has almost completely resigned himself to what's going to happen. But yeah, I was surprised at how many of these very intimate moments still remained in the archive. And there was another thing that really captured my attention is what his interviews with the police doctor, the prison doctor, um, which had a different tone. You know, that wasn't part of the prosecution. It was these conversations. And he seems to get along with the prison doctor because he tells him a bit more 
about his life and about his family life. Um, you know, the prison doctor is helping to ascertain whether he's fit to stand trial. And Mahmoud is fit, you know, he's, he's not insane. He's not, he doesn't have any learning disabilities. But yeah, that, that, that young man who's still a bit cocky and, you know, he's thinking that for the time he's in prison, he will get compensation. He's thinking ahead, you know, he's that, he's that kind of person. But um, there are all of these different elements of him that come out in that archive. You, you were just mentioning the part where he sort of is allowed after he's convicted to with Detective Powell, who comes in, he's able to dictate sort of his last his last testimony, which I think, according to uh, per Perkinson, um, Perkins. a lot of the time, Perkins, sorry, a lot of the time uh, these guys let it off their chest and admit it and he's sort of like I'm, I'm surprised that you're not doing yeah. that but there yes. but there's this beautiful thing that you do and and I guess this is maybe from the actual archive um where because he knows this um neighborhood or this where he lives so well he's like well based on this guy's testimony the way that he described this scene nobody would have come out and killed somebody if, if these yeah. many people were out looking. Yeah, it was And it was raining. just this beautiful irony that, that yeah. he would know it so well. Like, like he, it's the very essence of him not being capable of doing the murder that makes him know this thing so well, that makes it so obvious that he was innocent. That is obviously too late and, and sort of beyond the point, but yeah. that he knows it. He knows like, That's he knows for himself. Word in that moment he knows for himself like this is how I know this is and it also shows all. he's obsessive he's been thinking obsessively about what was said in court and that was you know this is something that he really did describe in that letter and he did hear it in court from that chief prosecution witness Harold Cover. Mm. Um, and he's obsessing he's thinking it didn't make sense well he knows that he's innocent his wife knows that he's innocent but no one else seems to believe it but he's picking through, he's, he is clever. He's an intelligent man. And that's also what the prison doctor said. He's a very clever man. Um, and he's going over it as if he's his own barrister and looking for these, and there's so many contradictions in what's said in court. You know, the two men that live with him in the boarding house, there's a hour and something difference in what time they say he comes home or, or not comes home, but leaves the front room. So how can you mistake? 7.30 for, for 10, you know, it's, it just is impossible. But that was left yeah. alone, you know, that was left alone in the trial. No one followed it up. Um, the, May Gray, who lies as well blatantly, and she is, you know, the barrister, defence barrister does pull her up on her lies. But, you know, she's saying that he, he came in fresh from the murder wearing white trousers. Who would, you know, it's just absolutely ridiculous. But he, he's, I can't imagine what it must feel like to hear stuff like that and knowing your life is on the line. And it's so ridiculous and yet you can't do anything about it. You know, the, the greatest minds, the greatest legal judges think that it's all, it all makes sense. And you're the one who's mad. You're the one who's evil. Mm -hmm. We spoke a little bit before uh, getting on live about kind of the divide between UK English publishing and American English publishing. And I mean, that's its own conversation, but there is something lost in the, the, the unity in subject matter around race and, and these immigration problems and colonization specifically as a focal point in the way that, that binds our stories together. Um, what do you hope that Americans can come to understand through this novel um, uh, to, to come to, to better understand, to contextualize colonization, Somalia, the UK, uh, you know, the last, the last uh, hanged man in Cardiff in Wales. Um, what are you, what are you hoping that like that, 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 that the novelization of this event can, can do toward multiple things, which I think it can, which I think you do beautifully the way yeah. you've layered things. I think maybe I'd hope that it would break down some of those preconceived boundaries. 
So when black history in Britain is discussed, it's nearly 100% about the Windrush generation, Caribbean migration to Britain. Um, and it's done in this very sort of linear way of, oh, it was quite difficult for them at the beginning, but now everyone is integrated and how lovely it is. Or if it's Muslim immigration, then it's Pakistanis and how tough it was and how it's now complicated in a different sense. So that position of being black and Muslim is completely lost within that. But also it's very political discussions of race in Britain. You know, the it's almost as if we don't talk about the empire in we don't learn about the empire in schools or even universities at all, really. You, you'd probably have to do MA level studies before you'd focus in on the empire. Um, and you have this general sense across the country that the empire was generally a good thing um, and helped people. Um, I had a conversation with my neighbor over the garden fence and he started the conversation by talking about Cecil Rhodes and how he wasn't that bad really. Um, which set me off. And then it ended up with me really explaining, in my view, what the empire meant and the violence and brutality it in, involved. And him saying, but it spread democracy or something. And, you know, he was someone, he's older and he had been um, raised in that culture of not being able to think critically about power. Um, while the men subject to it, whether they were Somali, Malay, Yemeni, Vietnamese, uh, First Nations, Canadian, whatever they were, they had a completely different experience of what that power meant. And the, the inheritors of both groups still have very, very different views on what all of that history has meant. Um, and I think that's the case in the US as well. You know, it seems to be the case. But what I think is missing is an honesty. Um, Mahmoud is not, he doesn't have to be a pure, innocent victim for him to throw a light on the worst of the British state. And I think, you know, what sometimes when I post things about human zoos, just say, online, it's young Somalis that get very angry with me because they think I'm celebrating it or I'm sharing in sharing the humiliation of these Somalis. Well, for me, it's not, I don't, I don't think back because I want to just judge or I want to feel good or I want to feel um, empowered. I prefer just to see things as they are, um, however ugly that is. And there's, you know, there's this conversation at the moment about how to teach the Holocaust, how to teach slavery. And I'm thinking back to the way I learned about things and it was with the most brutal, brutal information coming first. You know, I wasn't ever sheltered from the worst of human behavior, which has now made me quite, I think I've reached saturation level. There's only so much I can read and view anymore. Um, but I do think it's important to not hide. You don't need anything to be sanitized for you to be allowed to learn about it. You know, how can you sanitize these horrific things? I don't think you can. You know, I think you should measure how much you intake and when and how, but it's your duty to also open your eyes and bear witness, I think. Beautifully said. I think um, so often we, we get tired of some of the academic language or some of the rote language that we hear like colonization. And in place of it, sometimes it's dehumanization is, is, is the better word for colonization through the most horrific example like human zoo and and even unity from experience which across the pond as they say and here the way that that colonization has dehumanized populations and that we continue to feel those effects through justice system through political systems through economic systems dehumanization is what's what we're still feeling which is why you know books like this and, and addressing these injustices is is so relevant still yeah because we and still I, feel that the and, and in your book you point out several times that 
that Mahmoud is a savage and they, they speak of these people as savages. And obviously for a native person such as myself, like savage is a word that like rings loud, but it's mm. not just here. It's, it's, a, it's a dehumanizing word that's used all over the place. It is. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, no, I was just chipping in because I think you made me think about something, which is how prisons are probably the most direct connections to that history because it's so strange whether you're in Australia, whether you're in Canada, whether you're in the US, whether you're in, the, whether you're in Britain, the people in those jails, in the you know, in most um, unreasonable numbers, you know, the most disproportionate numbers are those colonized people. The prisons are still there to, to, fi to finish that job, that slavery, colonization, that dehumanization of all types started off doing. Um, they're there to, to, to take the labor, um, to take the freedom, to control the bodies of these people. Um, and that's probably what made me focus in on this case because, you know, they even keep Mahmoud's body. That's part of the punishment is that they hang him and then they keep his body in an unmarked grave in the vegetable plot of the prison. Um, and, you know, this idea of savagery that Britain had and the idea that they were spreading decent laws and humane laws around the world, which was just not the case in Somalia at that time. If you killed someone, you wouldn't be executed by this kind of state. You would, you would have to come to some sort of negotiation with, that, with the people of the family, the family members of the person you've harmed. And if you can't, if you refuse to compensate, if you refuse to admit guilt, then your life is at threat, but from them directly. So it creates this tension and often it's not the murder victim and the perpetrator only, it's the community around them that gets involved. And that's not a perfect solution at all. And it's, it perpetuated feuds and various other types of violence. But I think they would find it shocking for a state to come and take someone's life and then keep their body as if that person had no family and had no, no control of, of their own um, fate in a way and you know when I read about children's bodies being found in residential schools in Canada it makes me think of that it wasn't enough to take their life to take their freedom but you 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 hid their bodies or you you melted down their bodies and put them in in museums or gave them to universities who traded in these bodies and that's that's is true across the colonizing world this is part of the loot um and mm -hmm. There was a really shocking case from um, the bombing of the Africa group in Philadelphia. And it turns out that two of the children's remains had been used in training, um, pathology training in, in a university there and with no consent given from their living relatives and no knowledge even. And then their remains were discarded. So this is something in particular that I find, this is where the worst of the last 200, 500 years is still very much with us. Well, and, and to some extent, uh, the Fortune Men is, you know, bringing to life the remains of something that's unknown and unresolved, like these bones that end up in the wrong places, because, you know, we still don't know. And yeah. that's, you know, uh, I, 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 this is, I think we're a little bit too late for me to ask what you, why you think who you think did it and why you think it was the last hanging were way too far into the, this interview, <laughs> I think, for me to ask you those things. But I do want to know them. I want you to know that I want to know them. Okay, I'll let you know. <laughs> um, I'm not sure, Peter, wh where we're at. Uh, there's a couple questions. I don't know if I missed questions that weren't. Peter, if you want to fill in. Please, please go ahead. I mean, unless you want me to uh, kind of pluck them out, I'm happy to pluck them out if I can find it. But I mean, I, I saw a couple that seemed to be related like more closely to when we were in, in the context right. um, of the conversation, but I don't see any new ones other than two. There, I think there was a couple. Yeah, I mean, if you wanted to go for it, what you were going to ask, I'd love to hear you ask that. We do have time. So Betty, if you do you mind? <laughs> Well, I, I'm, I'm becoming more careful because I think when I was writing, I was I was in that mode where I could do what I liked with the story. And now, you know, now that's published, I remember that we're talking about real people. <laughs> so I don't want to name any names, but I think I know who did it. And it was another Somali oh. sailor, tall one, six foot, 
um, who matched the description of one of the people seen. And he said to another Somali guy, I was the last person in the shop and the police were looking for me. Police are looking for me. And he quickly ran away to Manchester and then got on a ship to Brazil where he got wow. ill and had to be hospitalized. Um, and I traced his life and I know that he died on board a ship off the coast of Jamaica in 1970, I think, or in the 70s. But I think he's the most likely candidate. And I showed a picture of him. I had a picture um, sent of him to the murder victim's niece who had seen the man. And she said, yeah, I think that was him. Wow. We're talking of, you know, a memory that's 70 years old. But she thinks that was that was a similar face to the face she saw on that doorstep. Wow. Yeah. I was looking at some of the questions. I, I think you've already answered those questions <laughs> just throughout the course of your natural uh, conversation. Yeah. Um, so I don't know if, uh, you know. That's the question of why Mahmoud, why this story? And I think I was shocked by everything about it. I think it came in my early 20s when a lot of the background information that I've picked up since I didn't have. So the fact that he was in Britain at this time, the fact that hanging, you know, execution was still a possibility at this time, that he was innocent, that he was so young, that there was this big love story between him and this Welsh young woman all of it really caught my attention and it was a slow burner. And for a long time, I kept being, you know, interested and I would, you know, keep up to date with any information that came up about the case. But I didn't, I, I'd lost the idea that I would write it. And it was only in 2015 that I thought, hmm, this book needs to be written. Well, if I may ask a question, uh, what next? What are you working on now? So I've got my notebook with me here um, and I'm going back to the other book that I tried to write 2014-15 that wasn't going anywhere and the fortune men replaced and it's about a family, a British Somali family in London, mother and two daughters and I've been really struggling with what the plot is but I know who the characters are and I know the tensions between the characters but I think it will be a look at the idea of inherited trauma as lived out in just everyday life for these women. Religion, vengeance, you know, rejection, all of these things, all of these basic things. Well, we look forward to that. Actually, Tommy, when is your book due? No. I'm waiting to hear back from my editor. Um, and I think once I get that feedback, I'll have a better idea. But, uh, you know, I, I turned in the last draft and- um, Congratulations. The, the second book is really hard. It is, it's, it was evil for me, really evil. I just had to throw it out, just take it like a piece of meat. <laughs> That's good to hear, thank you. <laughs> I can see one question from Amal, uh, and I think she's Somali because she's asking what Mahmoud's Gabil, um, his clan and his people, the people close to him thought about the novel. Um, so I've spoken to his family. I met his granddaughter in, in Wales. Um, and she didn't know him. She grew up uh, sort of away from the main family. But I, in, I go to Hargeisa, Somaliland, which is both mine and Mahmoud's hometown. And the first night I was there in 2019, I think, I met a guy, he got talking to me and his name was Mahmoud Matan. And he was a relative of the Mahmoud Matan I was writing about, which felt very eerie. Wow. Um, and I've been given the contact details for his brother's children's grandchildren or something. And they live in Tanzania and another bunch live in the Gulf. So they're scattered around like many Somali families are. But I'm, I'm gonna make contact with the Tanzanian side very soon. Wow, well. This has been such a rich discussion and, and what an extraordinary book. Uh, congratulations, Nadifa and, thank and you. Tommy, thank you so much for doing the honors tonight. I'm really, really grateful to you too. Um, really great interlocutor. And uh, well, we look forward to your next books, both of you. Thank you again. 
thank you to everyone who's um, turned up tonight. Thank you so much for Tom, uh, to Tommy for reading the book so closely and, you know, making me remember some of these details and the connections between those bits um, that I'd completely not even thought about, actually. Um, so, yeah, that was really wonderful. And this is the last event for a good while. And it, this was a fantastic one. Thank you. Thank you. To Thank you. So good to meet you here. And you enjoy the Lunar New Year now. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast from City Lights Bookstore and Publishers. Our theme music was provided by Axolotl. All City Lights events are free. To see upcoming events at City Lights Bookstore in San Francisco, check out www.citylights.com events.